0: Wear for an hour or two hours at a time. Don't no. Yeah. So uh, I'm Thomas, and this is a KAAMP. This is a Knoxville area artist networking platform podcast. And uh, I'm running around town today on Kingston Pike here with someone that uh, I have very little clue, but was recommended to by someone's opinion that I respect quite a bit. So here I am, friend. Will you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm
1: Alon Sharnsey. I'm a rabbi. Uh, I work with artists of all media around the country and a little bit around the world. I'm a spiritual counselor. It looks a bit like coaching, but it's very focused on the intersection of spirituality and creativity. So far, it's mostly one-on-ones, and I've also gathered people for workshops, and we've discussed
0: potential retreats in the future as well. So what does your daily routine look like for your creativity? Oh, goodness.
1: (laughs) Oh, goodness. I, I had actually a client I almost met with this morning that had to postpone for a child-related issue said to me early in the process, so what's something very similar? What's your art? And I was stammered because I play Dungeons & Dragons. I'm very creative there. I'm a dungeon master or game master, depending on what we're playing. And I know how to do a lot of artistic things, but I'm very weak at each of them. I used to be a pretty good actor, but I've never been able to be a great guitarist. Uh, I certainly can't do any visual arts, so it's it's noodling still. I'm thinking about getting back into theater. Um, I'd like have i never gotten to direct. I'd like to direct something small. I don't know how that will work with four children and the demands of family and work, uh, because the last the last week or two of a play is you know 30 to 50
0: hours of of time. That's why you must cast the children. Oh, that's not a bad idea. They're terrible actors. I've seen them. (laughs) Yeah. When they try
1: to convince you of things. No, I've seen, they do plays at school. I mean, one of them has potential. They're good little musicians. I sort of want to have a family band, um, but we're not at that stage yet. And they fight too much. You know, about the beat and stuff like that. (laughs) Um, But I, I don't know. I'm, I'm looking into ways to be more expressive. I, I was pretty continually in my adulthood a writer, a lot of essay and nonfiction. And I started some sketches for some fiction, science fiction work. Um, like I said, I'd like to get back into theater. But in terms of process daily,
0: yeah, that's, that's more the focus that's, that's of the a
1: question. Great question. Because I, I feel like a, a hypocrite, because I would not allow my clients to do this. My practice is very haphazard. I would really push them into having something more consistent and accountable. I meditate periodically and lead meditations. I do the morning pages that Julia Cameron recommends in the artist's way, but instead of doing them daily, I do them weekly. And instead of a weekly artist's date, I do that monthly. I do some work to prepare for games that I'm leading. I should be doing... Should is a word I try not to use. (laughs) I, I... could be doing more writing, and I'm doing a presentation soon, so I'm writing for that, and that'll probably turn into rudiments of an article that I could publish, or at least consider. What else do I do? as it sort of an arts practice? And you know, so, much, so much of my creativity is devoted to the work rather than my own production of art, um, and I think that's intention so as that client pointed out, like I, to be authentic and to be part of the mix of what I'm doing with people, I should be following my own advice and having authentic practices. But I do some of what I advise, which is like going for walks without my phone, meditating, doing things that seem aimless or playful until they aren't. Um, I do my own therapies, which I think is necessary, more of a precursor to what I do with people, that they address anxiety, depression, narcissism, you know, family of origin, trauma. Um, okay. What else? I do try to be around art. It, what's, what's an interesting, I wouldn't say it's a perversion, but it's a transition is instead of listening to music and experiencing art and reading at, at my leisure, I, do, I listen to and experience a lot of things my clients are working on. So they'll send me a track they're working on or I'll see a painting they're working on. And that, that tends to be a lot, a disproportionate amount of what I consume these days. Like I, I stopped reading a novel because I was busy reading other people's stuff.
0: Well, I can imagine that's helpful in a, in a way that lends context to whatever the situation is with the client.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love doing it. And, and then what's really interesting, when you know the person, you can't become an objective Critic of their work. I can't tell you if your painting is good. I can't tell you if this track is good because I like you and you're telling me the story of <laughs> how it came up. And I think that's probably true for a lot of, you know, a model in the work is the way Rick
0: Rubin approaches artists, right? From a oh, great- yes, Rick Rubin. Uh, did you see his, the
1: interview on 60 Minutes or anything he's been doing? I did, record? yeah,
0: where he's just like, I don't know crap about music. Which is a
1: lie. He was in a band. He <laughs> right. was in a punk band in the 70s. Uh, he,
0: he knows how to play music, but his his attitude towards uh, shepherding artists mm-hmm. deeper into whatever it is they choose to be working on, I think, is an excellent um, place to come at things with because he gets hired to work with, not work for, I would imagine. So...
1: Yeah, I, I, so I had, it was extremely, extremely sweet. There's an 80-something German woman in my congregation. I'm a former pulpit rabbi. And Monday morning, I guess it was about a month ago, she sends me a text. She said, I saw Rick Rubin on 60 Minutes. She misspelled his name in this adorable way. <laughs> and, and I finally understood what you're working on. Because when I left the congregation, a lot of the people of a certain generation couldn't fathom why a rabbi would do what I'm doing. And she said, oh, that's what you're doing. I said, yeah, except he's fabulously successful and wealthy. But yes, <laughs> it is very much asking the artists what they're trying to achieve. And I think I think um, George Martin did this well with the Beatles, by all accounts. He didn't try to turn them into another band. He tried to turn the dial up on what they were. Yeah, I would agree and, to that statement. And I think that's why Rick Rubin works with LL Cool J, the Chicks, formerly the Dixie Chicks, Slayer, and... Um, he was working in the video with Omu Sangari, who's like this incredible African musician. Because I, I think he listens to what they're trying to do. right? And then I'm expanding that out to the visual arts and to streaming and to um, acting, game design. I'm just thinking about various clients. I mean, a, a big plurality, if not by now, the majority of my clients are musicians. But there are other performers and writers in the mix, poets. And the question is always, what are you trying to do? You know, and, and then, like I said, you lose your objectivity. I'm not, right. I'm not pitchfork anymore. <laughs> I, I don't. I can't give you a rating. The best I could say to a client the other day was like, I don't really like the color orange. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting so, I, you know, as far as like critique, I don't have that anymore. And it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun to let all that go. Patton Oswald talks about that, like how when he was young he loved to tell people you know what you're doing sucks and as you get older you're like this isn't for me yeah you know and and i think i'm thinking about a session i had yesterday what came up was like every stroke was true right in the painting and that's all that matters to me
0: right because you'll know instantly when the one that isn't isn't me or well, the, her, the, the, the person creating yeah. the piece of work we always know i mean
1: i think that's part of rick rubin's work too is to tell them like this isn't you right you
0: you've strayed from your path or did you do it intentionally well i know in my creative process when i make the one wrong brushstroke that there's a lot of subsequent brushstrokes to make it look like the right brushstroke
1: (laughs) well i think also there's like the saboteurs right that that was a, a phrase a client used that i like a lot is the inner critic So in this particular experience I'm thinking of from another day, what screws up the brushstrokes is the inner critic telling you this should look more like Manet than you, right?
0: Yeah, fair. Um,
1: And I think there's a, I was trying to find the value to the critic. I mean, it probably helps you pick a restaurant. Yeah, (laughs) among other things. (laughs) We're going to spend this money, should we spend it on Thai food or Jamaican food, I guess would be the question. But it, and it probably helps at a certain point in the process where you have a completed beat, you have a completed poem and you go back to it and you're like, this isn't right. Right? Like this doesn't feel like what I was trying to say, or it doesn't hold true anymore, or it's, it's too much of a moment that wasn't really what I wanted to say, or it's not prophetic or it's not honest. Um... But the inner critic that's, you know, your father's voice telling you you shouldn't go to art school isn't a helpful
0: voice. <laughs> no, it's, it's not. <laughs> uh-huh. So that, that's pretty much the overall. Is that the top-down view of what you do professionally now, more or less? Well, the
1: shorthand is really that Rick Rubin 60 Minutes video, except, you know, you're removed. Like, I don't yet look like a homeless man. There's a, there's a, there was a Bill Maher thing of uh, fake Academy Awards and it was best album produced by a band that thought they were working with Rick Rubin, but it turned out to be a homeless guy who had wandered, (laughs) (laughs) wandered into the studio. I also, you know, I, I haven't gotten to the level of success where people will return my calls, but yeah, and I don't, and I don't just work with musicians, although music is my my first
0: passion well and in this town music is pretty darn king is it yeah
1: i'm curious about that well i think I'm, of
0: craft is really big here too pottery and i would agree craft. but how many stages how many nights a week have crafters and potters Yeah, the potters never go on stage, so I don't know. I I don't know how to just my my point is here is like how many venues are open, readily accessible for that type of expression on any given night, and you can go anywhere in Knox County on any given night and see live music. Can you? Yes. I feel like the opportunities are too thin. No, there is live music every night of the week in this city. Really? Yes.
1: Live music you'd want to see, or just well,
0: my tastes are subjective, obviously.
1: Obviously, (laughs) but but
0: uh, yeah, there's there's music to be seen any night of the week.
1: Yeah. Wow. I guess I'm I need to figure out where the other venues are
0: because I just know the major ones. Well, I mean, between two thousand cap rooms and bar rooms, there's there's somewhere to play. I will have to start
1: being more serious in my investigations.
0: Well, I don't know how frequent you or how frequently you find yourself in a bar, but there are plenty around here that have live Live music. music. Yeah, there's all kinds. After
1: we talk, you'll scribble out some places. All right. (laughs) I'd also like to see stand up comedy.
0: Now, if from from my vantage on the Knoxville comedy scene, uh, which is not something I'm too terribly versed in, but would like to see more of, um, we don't have we have a really strong city comedy scene but as far as acts coming through the city people that tour with their comedy we don't have a good spot for them to play anymore since the comedy club closed side splitters closed like 2000 while ago 12 or something like that in the building
1: show there and then it's i haven't seen anything else
0: yeah and i've seen a lot of comedians that i really like that was you know nearly a national level spot like it it pulled top tier talent that was moving around the country yeah um, you know, I saw a handful of people there that I would love to see again, but since we don't have that venue, those acts don't have a vacuum here to fill anymore. So the market here is lacking. But, uh, as far as local talent, we have, um, the, the improv group Einstein simplified. They do stuff at Scruffy city hall, I think on Monday nights or Tuesday nights. And then there are a couple other, uh, venues and, and rooms around town that host live comedy. Okay. You're going to have to give me more.
1: I don't have the full list is obviously what I'm learning and kind of embarrassed to realize like I don't, I'm so familiar with, you know, things happening at the Tennessee theater and mill and mine and Bijou that I don't know what happens at the next sort of tier below that or above that.
0: Well, the, the, the bar rooms and the, and the, you know, 500 cap spots are generally where you're going to find a lot of your comedy.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Um, are there websites that, that track it? Um, I'm not sure, but, WUTK does a really good job of keeping up with all these kinds of things. That's what I would need to know. Okay. Um they just they just announced a new newsletter, Knox Buzz. Oh, I'll see something do that. like that. Maybe yeah, like they that just announced a new, a new a new and I and I'm particularly interested in this particular newsletter because in the ad to subscribe to it, they were talking about art openings and gallery showings and specifically more culture events too oh that's so, what i need to be signed so that's up for. that's okay good that's what i need to get into you have to edit this stuff out i don't need to have the parts where i'm like oh yeah oh, no. well okay so about that um i generally try to edit these conversations as little as possible because I, I feel as if the flow of conversation gets ruined when you chop it up a lot i totally agree and I, totally uh, agree. I, I, just... I don't enjoy listening to that do you think people will enjoy listening to us talk about what what where i should go to what website i should go to well i don't, if they don't enjoy it, they can tell me, and then I may or may not disregard that. Okay. Uh, but I will urge them to voice their opinions either way. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I just I don't like a chopped up conversation. I don't like a lot of interjected sound bites. I just I, like the flow of a conversation. Like a 45 to 90 minute conversation has its own air to it, and yeah. they, they ebb and they flow in ways that I find really comfortable and entertaining. So that okay. that's the window I really try to hit. Okay. Um. You know, I'll, I'll cut stuff off the front or off the back, but generally anything in the middle, I try not to mess with. Just, you know, as it's an authentic authenticity thing for me. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a time and energy devotion thing on the back end too. And, um, this particular workflow with how I present this media is the healthiest way for me to present this media without sinking too much time or mental capital into it. Plus it's how I like to consume media like this. So it balances out.
1: I think we talk about, actually, in sessions is process. Like, what's the right process for you? And that's where you started.
0: What's my process? Yeah, I I try to think through the execution of the things um, before, usually before I find myself neck deep in them, (laughs) because as much as I like to just willy-nilly go about things, the other aspect of my creative self likes to at least have some sort of reasonable expectation of how I'm going to perform this thing. And it's and
1: Where's the room for surprise in that, though?
0: Oh, the room for surprise is <laughs> intermittent in all of those things. Because I don't know what you're going to say next.
1: No, I mean, I, yeah, but in in any sort of arts process, I think there's, there's this whole concept that keeps coming up with clients. Um, I don't have a good arts word for it, but in, in Jewish studies, you call it Torah Lishma. Torah is the Hebrew word for the Pentateuch first five books of Hebrew Bible. And Lishma means for its own sake. So the idea of study and instruction for its own sake. So when you ask about my arts process, part of it is I read a little bit of the Talmud each night. And it's it's more a logic book than a creativity manual, but the idea of doing things that have no obvious return is... I think really important for
0: an artist. Well, play is That's, very important. Yeah. You can
1: I, ca- let's call it that then. Yeah. Well, I,
0: I like to pose myself as a man of comfort and leisure. <laughs> uh, and so you see me here in jogging pants and a tie dye shirt, a man, of
1: comfort.
0: A, a man of comfort and leisure. Uh, <laughs> you sound like a, like a 1930s British diplomat. <laughs> listen, listen, if, <laughs> I, like if I had a smoking jacket and a pipe, it, it would be fit. Um, but this this also helps me put myself in a place where i can sit down on a canvas and play with it for 45 minutes and not have any structured expectation of what may be when i'm done uh the oh see that's not what you said you said you have a you try to look at the outcome well it's it's the duality of that okay i do both of these things now sometimes i'll sit down and say i'm going to use these six colors i'm going to have this sort of base pattern and then everything else is up to chance, you know, how it goes. Or I'll sit down with, you know, th- whatever it is I have in front of me and just do something, which could be what's laying around the living room or what's currently on my, my, my drafting table, you know, whatever it may be. I don't, I, I fall on both sides of these coins or this coin. And it's, it's equally beneficial to me to practice both sides of that. Um, if, if I have an image in my head that is really concrete and ready to come out of my fingertips, then I've thought about the process of this piece. But if I just have a feeling or a part of an idea and I know I need to express it and it's not necessarily like the most rendered in my head, uh, opposed to pieces that I've thoroughly thought through, I'll just sit down and you know, play with the bones of the idea on the paper and see what comes of it. So there's, there's that really structured regimented part of my creativity when I have a really well-defined idea. And then if I just have part of an idea or, um, an abstract notion I wish to express, then I have room to do both of those things. However, I see fit. So I'm not trying to pigeonhole myself. It's just, I know that those are the two extremes of how I work, but anywhere in between that, my work can come out of my fingertips. I'm just trying to think of how many people, I mean, I think I have a client
1: who probably has a a graphic idea of what they want. And then I have clients who just go into the studio or the home studio and start making and surprise themselves and, try to recognize when the work is done whether it's a painting or a beat the,
0: the when the when the work is done that is a, a is a terribly difficult question.
1: question it's a huge question for every artist um, I think that's probably what rick rubin does a lot of being a really good record producer is telling the band it's over hey this is good you yeah, can stop here we can stop we gotta stop and probably remove two tracks yeah. right? like, <laughs> and, and not do what we did because he talks himself about being a reducer which i love that model i mean and maybe it's just me like I'm trying to think if this is true of other arts but certainly in music some of my favorite stuff is so simple like Nick Drake has an album Pink Moon where it's just him and his guitar and the, I always think they recorded in a hotel room but I don't think that's true but he just went in with the engineer and then there's one track has a piano or you know the, the Rick Rubin records with Johnny Cash are really spare I don't know if that's true of like literature that I love I don't know if I would call Cormac, Cormac McCarthy's one of my favorite authors I don't think his stuff is so spare language can be pretty brutal but it's flowery
0: also it's elaborate one of my most difficult points is figuring out when to stop and yeah. and there's there's a point here that I normally cross or a line that I normally cross is like, if I do anything else to this I'm going to mess it up not that it's done or it's finished but if I continue it will be worse it will be worse somehow so I like try bell curve. yes yeah. I try to find that line and that's with most things um, but you know if I have a, a, a very well formed idea I know when it's finished because I know when I've achieved the thing that I see in my head but if it's, it's a, that clear in your head sometimes not all the time by any stretch of the imagination but there are times where I'm working on ideas that I know exactly how I need to do every single part of it and once I've done all those steps it is finished. I've, those ideas, I don't look at them when I think I'm done and go, oh, I need to add this. It's like, no, it's finished and it's done now. But the more open-ended side of my workflow is like, oh man, you know, I would really like to put blue here, but if I do, I don't know. And then I have to look at it for weeks and debate with myself. And if it comes to be like a month and I haven't touched it, I'll be like, all right, this is done. I'm, I'm okay with how it sits because I haven't had the drive to add to it or take away from it. Yeah. Also getting as an adult and taking my creative efforts seriously, learning my creative desires has been a really intricate process because no there's no rule book for this. There's no um that is a hundred percent my work with people. Yeah. Like trying to get them to hear
1: their creative desires. I oh, like it's, that a lot.
0: It's so it's so strange, uh, in a way that it's almost an internal dialogue you have to have with yourself about how satisfied or dissatisfied you are with what you're doing in the moment and not not and that's the inner critic part we were talking about earlier it's it's does this suit me and how i want to express it and does this suit the piece i'm trying to express with and how all those things intersect with one another it's 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 an intimate conversation you have to have with yourself about how you create it's so much fun oh god i love it that's why i still make art it's every so day <laughs>
1: I, um, since I started doing this, I've been having trouble sleeping, and only for the best reasons that I keep. I'll be at night thinking about something that happened or what oh, yeah. I want do. Your,
0: your brain is wide awake with the, the wonderful things Just you have energized. done or are coming. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And every couple of weeks, I call my prescriber and say, I think I need to take less Prozac so I can sleep. <laughs> That's a good thing. It it's like. a- been amazing. It's been amazing to be around these. And then a piece that I never anticipated is having people show me work before they show almost anyone. Not, not the vanity of it being before they show, but work in its genesis when it's not even good. Like, and that's not the question, but it's just to explain to me, like, here's something I'm really excited about or not excited about. I think this sucks. I think this is really exciting. But, but I'm working why, on it. Right. And I wanted to share this with you. And then I get to ask them, like, what were you thinking about when you did it? And how long did it take you? And why? And what was the process? And did that feel right to you? And I think I think to circle back to what you said, like art schools, pro- and I've reached out to some art schools to work with them. Art schools probably teach you a lot of technique, but not a lot of that inner visioning of like, why am I doing this? And what what suits me? One of the worst conversations I had was with a record producer who, who now teaches at a school. And he's like, oh, I teach the kids to make copies of other things. So I was like, why? I mean, there's a technical virtuosity to that, like being able to reproduce the drum beat on a Drake song, but it's not going to help people find their voice, except by except by um, negative lesson, like this isn't me, right?
0: Which is valuable sometimes. Yeah. But the opposite side of that would be more valuable in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, the worst job I ever had,
1: the guy who employed me gave, had came into some yoga pants and I had these really comfortable yoga pants and yoga shirt for years until they wore out and I think like that job was awful but I still have these nice clothes so right. there's, there's something to be gained from a lot of experiences and I think we're in collaboration with a lot of sources always and there's that push and pull of what we want and what we don't want and what we're attracted to And then there is a value in being able to enunciate that and make it explicit. And then sometimes that's overrated. being able to describe why you think you really like Anish Kapoor's
0: work. (laughs) What a polarizing figure, that man. Is he? Anish Kapoor? Yeah. Oh, yes. For political reasons or just his work? Well, the context of his work is why I find him to be very polarizing. Which is? Tell me more. Well, uh, his architecture in public things are, are gorgeous and are generally well-received, but his artistic practice isn't the most friendly to other artists. Um, how? Oh. Um, I thought you were going to tell
1: me, like, he's six-year-old Tibetans to make his oh, sculptures. No, no, no.
0: It's, it's more so how um, he has very exclusive um, materials and processes granted to him by uh, large companies and the federal government, really? and he, yeah, uh, Vanta Black. He's. I was curious if you're going to say <clears throat> some color. Vanta Black. He's the only artist licensed to use Vanta Black, and he is very uppity about it. And it is unappreciated generally in the artistic How can community. You, like
1: claim a color.
0: He's well, it's a chemical compound, and the company but and they, the government. Did DuPont find Vanta Black? They did, and they produce it, or whoever the. But he's the only one who can buy it from them. Well, he's the only person that can use it. Period. You gotta license me a color
1: that sounds great
0: well try try to use ralph lauren green real quick and see what happens um well i think i think the vols have that orange is trademarked it's uh pms 151 that's the code for it that is the pms code for it yes um it's the only pms code number i know off the top of my head so <laughs> nobody asked me pretty orange. it is a very pretty orange but uh they they do have it i think trademarked but they can't trademark a pattern, which is the checkerboards. So checkerboards are fair game. But vanta Vantablack itself, I suppose, is more polarizing than Anish Kapoor's use of it. It's just that he is so tightly correlated with it, being he's the only artist allowed to use it. I can't believe you can get a like a I don't know what backdoor deal he had to do to make this happen, but that's that that's weird. how it is. Um and you know some of the things he's done with it the the hole in the ground and and how he's chosen to use it and demonstrated uh, he painted a BMW X6 with it and it looked hideous because it's a it's a car and it looked like a big black blob after that but as a technical demonstration this this compound is amazing but interesting uh, there are a lot of people who have a very negative opinion about him and his work due to this fact uh, I'm I'm a little just the issue with Vanta Black or are there other like sort of proprietary
1: things he's doing with his work. Uh, Both. So this is an interesting question that comes up more and more. So I have a a musician I work with in Nashville who got advice from a musician early in his career that everyone needs a technology, right? Like Jimi Hendrix had the wah-wah pedal and the rotary speaker. And I think that's, I mean, I think, you know, as a guitarist who likes to play with pedals and has a friend who's got a pedal company, like I get that. And I think if you replace tech, technology with technique... I was about to say that. Yeah, I think there's, there's an interesting intersection there of... And I'm giving a presentation next week, and I haven't added it to the presentation, but I can imagine future iterations talking about, like, it's not just process, it's a technique that you need to discover that is you, not necessarily uniquely yours. Like, someone I'm working with does a lot of f- finger painting and, you know, a certain guitar technique or sound or looping. Um, you know, the way e. e. Cummings created sort of in his poetry, the use a, and misuse of punctuation and capitalization or, or creating words that aren't exactly words. I think there's a real power to that. But then again, it goes back to like process leading to product. So I do think you need to find your process because I think process influences product.
0: Well, that's one of those things that's going to be inherent to the individual. And that's right. only going to work for that individual because that's, that's I mean. their process. You know, Jimi Hendrix also played guitar left-handed, so, you know, there's That's pretty crazy. So that's that's another thing that made him stand apart from the crowd a little bit on top of just his general style and how he came into his artistic persona. His journey into being Jimi Hendrix was wild, you know. Uh, playing backup for Lil Richard and all that you know jazz. how you he, he went, if went through some that. stuff yeah. the first being a musician yeah. before he was Jimi uh, Hendrix with the now, Jimi if Hendrix experience we're going to talk about I mean I think people have to make make their, their bones their with bones. my personal style and the art that yeah, I make
1: I, it's taken I mean, me like three years yeah, four years to figure Charlie
0: out Parker, how to do the things that I'm making now yeah and I mean how do you there's you know a handful of influences from all over my life that have Bled into this to make it what it is, and some of that is natural, some of that is human-generated aesthetic, and the synthesis of those two has created this psychedelic, pinstrappy, automotive-inspired craziness that I very much enjoy. It's a it's a hand laid, freeform geometry that that I play with all the time. That sounds fun. Uh, it's it's oh god it. This is where I find my peace, my calm, and my workflow. The zen of my workflow is putting three or four hours with a brush in my hand, making these single brush strokes that make a larger assembly of, of geometry. I'll, I'll show you pictures. but I
1: will want to see it after. I'll uh, yeah. be uh, in person rather this than is, in pictures.
0: This is just... Now we're getting to the part that I want to talk to you about. This is where I find the zen in my workflow because this is the part where my brain turns off and oh, this, yeah. this is the That's part flow, flow state yeah send exactly. me talks about the flow and this state. is this is one of the things that I ask or, or try to remember to ask just about everyone where do you find this in your flow state is this part of your workflow is this something that you um, actively practice to achieve in your workflow and what amount of your workflow is necessary or or involved in that aspect of your I think the mindscape? closest I
1: get got to that kind of experience in arts making was being on stage
0: Which makes total sense, right?
1: right? Because you can't think of anything but what your next line is and what this person's going to say and reacting. You're in the moment, yeah. But I think I'm I'm noticing as you're talking, and I keep you. You started by asking me about my process, and I realized what is my technology is scripture, is holy, is sacred text. Like, you know, when I create meditations, it's based around ideas of sacred text. It's based around use and misuse of sacred text. When I, I mean, the funniest thing is when, if my wife listens into me playing Dungeons and Dragons and I'm like mastering a game, she says, don't they know that character is evil? He's named after someone bad in the Bible. (laughs) I was like, well, they're not biblically literate. Thank God for me. Well, context to be damned. (laughs) Right. But they, you know, there's a lot of, even in the, in the process of working with clients, I think what differentiates me from a coach, why I'm part of why I'm really resistant to calling my work coaching is is among other things, there's a deep spiritual grounding to it. And, and it, there's a lot of classic stories from my tradition, whether it's Hebrew scripture, Talmudic story, late rabbinic practice, mystical and late mystical practices, that I can give people as rubrics under which to do their work. There's a story, um, it's kind of funny because it's, it's really hackneyed in Jewish circles, but you can take this really hackneyed thing and, and repurpose it and reshare it, and people th- find it very helpful, which is there's a rabbi, I guess about 200 years ago, Zusha of Hanipol, and a famous quote of his is that uh, when, they, when he gets to heaven, they won't ask him why he wasn't Moses. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the punchline is they'll ask him why he wasn't Zusha. Right.
0: Well, he wasn't himself.
1: Yes. And I think that's—I mean—that's the artist's struggle, right? Like, you're not supposed to be Pollock. You're supposed to be yourself. Right. You're not supposed to sound like the Beatles. You're supposed to sound like yourself. You know. And and then also, I mean, I think I'm really enjoying Rick Rubin's new book, the Act, the Creative Act. And I I struggle with this diversity among the people I work with. So there are authors, poets, novelists, uh, a streamer who are essentially working alone. And then there are people in a band, there are people on stage, right, who are working in a crew. But what Rick Rubin points out is everyone's really collaborating, right? Sometimes it's with the voices around you, sometimes it's with the voices Previous to you, sometimes it's even with voices yet to come.
0: Well, I don't, I don't think there's a way you can truly isolate yourself from the influence that is the life you're living. Like I I could, I could tell you that this is my idea and I made it and I worked on it in privacy in my own home and nobody else has seen it until I debuted it to the public and it was solely my creation, one hundred percent. That is such a ridiculous statement to but me. That's
1: only true of masturbation, what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> the,
0: only, the
1: only thing that that story applies to is masturbation.
0: So, you know, I, there's, there's not a way that I feel that one can escape the influences of the context of their lives. Absolutely. And no matter what, it might not be an active or knowing collaboration, but the fact that you went on a run this morning and had to turn around because the water was taken over the path was a forced collaboration just, between you and Mother Nature. Just,
1: just to clarify, I was on a bike. I can't run anymore. My hips are too
0: <laughs> old. <laughs> <With>
1: clarification: <laughs> I cannot run anymore. But
0: uh, example stands, and you yeah. were, you were forced to comply with this circumstance. Mm-hmm. And life is a lot like that. Like I recently was in a car accident, had to mm-hmm. acquire a different car, so that was a circumstance that I was forced to comply with. And sometimes you. Most of the time, you just cannot escape those overarching bits of context in a person's life,
1: and it's not just compliance; it can be active conversation.
0: Right. I mean, there can be a back and forth with these things. You have to interact with them, whether it's one directional or bi directional. You know.
1: You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna push into a metaphor. Go, please. So the Talmud, I really struggle with. So there's this process where you can read the Talmud is about two thousand folio pages, which means front and back pages. And there's an idea called Dafiomi, which means daily page. And if you read a page a day, which takes 20, 30 minutes, depending on how carefully you read it, sometimes 10, you can complete the whole book in a little over seven years. So I'm about two-fifths the way through. And what's fun that I didn't pick up in seminary is, what the hell is this book? (laughs) What is the nature of this book? Was that because
0: it was presented to you in such a manner? they, they present allowed, it. They present
1: it like it's the you, foundations you of Jewish to practice. Explore it, or you Exa- yes. You or learned, here's it. the thing. Right. And you read it through and you're like, is this a recipe book? Is it a story book? I mean, most of it is a logic book. It's about how to think. Like it's a, it's an instruction manual for how to think about things. I went to I rejoined the hospital ethics committee at UT and I was like, this is like a Talmud discussion. Like people bring up these unusual cases and try to think about it how to connect them ethically and legally to other cases and to other principles, what principles are they illustrating, which is a lot of Talmud, but it's also this dialogue, or dialogue implies too, it's a conversation among dozens of sages and previous traditions and people who didn't even live at the same time or in the same country. And the work of what we call the redactor, which is the editor, in gathering those sources and making them appear in conversation together is very interesting as a model for artists because, I mean, you can't have a conversation with Manet, right? Mm -mm. You can't have a conversation with um, E.E. Cummings or T.S. Eliot, but yet you do, right? And then I mean, maybe, maybe, I guess it's strictly metaphorically. So you read theirs, you write, and then maybe in response to what you write, you read something new and you see it in a different way. So maybe we are all in this timeless conversation and collaboration. And it's a very weird book, the Talmud. And it's a very, you know, when I said about this idea of like study Torah Lishma, this idea of like doing things that are inherently or seemingly unproductive. It leads to, and you called it play, which it is. There's it a form of play. There's a, um, a philosophy work. I think it's called *The Grasshopper*, and it's about defining play. And the definition is something along the lines of arbitrary imposition of rules that make it more difficult.
0: Right? <laughs> I like that. I like
1: like that you, a lot. you know, if you could run a race and just shoot the guy next to you with a gun, like then you would win, win right? <laughs> You'd win very easily. You could walk, but you've imposed rules that you have to run on this straight course and you can't take shortcuts and you can't trip the other guy. Darn. I know. <laughs> I'll never be a good runner. Um, but I think that's like such a cool... I'm just starting to think about it as using the Talmud as a framework to help artists. And I'm not clear how it works because the Talmud is so much a logic piece and we usually think of like logic and creativity as at odds with each other although I don't think they have to be. I think bureaucracy Bureaucracy is at odds with creativity? Uh,
0: yes, I was about to finish that sentence for you. I was th- bureaucracy is definitely at odds with creativity. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean I was t- that was the piece that what I found suffocating was working in a nonprofit was the bureaucracy of it all.
0: Well there's so much inherent structure to something like that it's hard to find the place mm-hmm. where you have room to play because everything is so regimented that we have this form for this and this is the action you take with this piece of paper and if you need to get this done, you talk to and these people averse. in this way. Yes, uh, there's n- there's no room for taking chances in a lot of these uh, yeah. organizational styles, which for business sometimes is you know puts you in a hole. As far as running things in general, if you don't have room to take risks, then you're pigeonholed.
1: What's also fascinating, you mentioned business and starting my own business, is like it's not fear, but it's real clarity of decision. Right behind you is a label maker. It took me weeks to decide if I wanted to spend $60 on a label maker for my files. Right. And I was scribbling on, you know, old stickers with, with a Sharpie and the stickers were falling off. And I was like, I need a label maker.
0: And it took you weeks to finally have a clear, defined thought that I need to purchase this.
1: Well, I mean, for one thing, I'm on a shoestring budget still. So, you know, Rick Rubin doesn't think about buying a label maker. Right. properly. Yeah. But it was fun. Like, do, how much do I really need this? And how much is it going to contribute to my function?
0: And you had time to weigh those options. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a luxury all by itself.
1: Yeah. I mean, that luxury is provided by my wife having a job. <laughs> right? And our mortgage being very modest. And our, you know.
0: But luxury kid. nonetheless.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think artists need to be cognizant of privilege within the arts, too. Right? Like, there's, there is a disproportionate number of successful artists who come from white affluent backgrounds, but like it, it requires a lot of preparation and training to become fruitful. And not everyone has that option. You know, I have a a black single mother client who doesn't have a spouse who's a banker. She's the banker, right? She has to work at a bank and then come home and make her art and feed the kids. Right. there's, there's luxury, to affluence that allows for arts making, but also takes the heat off of it. Right? Like yeah. if, if I didn't have to, there was something fun about the heat of making a decision for a sixty dollar label maker. The tension, the kind of tightrope of it. Even though it's really ridiculous to call making that decision a tightrope,
0: but. Well, it, it is impossible for anyone but you to know the context and the tension of making this decision. Yes. But the fact that you had the luxury of time and the ability to enjoy making that decision makes the process and the end result worth it, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. Well, I think... F- I think it had been a long time that I hadn't taken serious risk. I don't, I don't know what my favorite part of my work is right now, but among them is the risk. is. You know, it's already succeeding, so I'm not like gonna starve to death. And like I said, my wife has a well paying job and she's happy. But I, at a synagogue pulpit, it has so many wonderful elements, and among them is security. Mm-hmm. You're paid along a contract, it right? was in a multi year contract, it couldn't easily be fired. The salary was more than generous. Most of the time, I worked with Lovely people and didn't work obscene hours. It certainly didn't compromise my family life, and I was good at it. But I wasn't challenging myself after a while, and I think I missed that. I missed being scared a little—not being scared, but being—I <laughs> yeah, would be, be scared when people yell at me or people would be a fight in a boardroom. But fundamentally, putting myself out there.
0: The, the gravity of your decisions were less because everything was so structured around you.
1: Mm, Perhaps? I'm not sure it's the gravity because they're still, you know, dealing with people as they were dying and, and being born. And every part in between it was like...
0: Well, how about personal gravity? More, more, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Dictation for your own path.
1: Yeah, skin in the game, yeah. agency, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I suppose eventually I'll get tired of this, you know, like this idea of having my own work and it'll be wearying and someone will say, Hey, do you want to come work at the university? And I'll think about it, but maybe not.
0: Well, in, in this vein, one of the things that I've been toying with as uh, as an overarching idea of how I'd like to conduct my life is I really don't enjoy having a job, but I very much enjoy working. Mm. Um,
1: I really do like working now.
0: I, 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 I love working on the things that I love working on. And trying to explain this concept to my father, who is 60 years old, challenges his worldview in a way that he is very uncomfortable with. Of course. Um, of course. So, I, so by that reaction, I understand how polarizing of an idea this is to someone that has lived the life where you have a job, and that's your life, and that's how you go through things. Uh, but... I have a million things I would love to work on, but I don't want to have to get up at 5 a.m. and go to work because I have a job. I want my job to be expressing myself through my work, not so much um, the things I go to do to participate in society, to make money as a normal workforce person. Like, I want to be able to do the things that I create actively be the way I transition myself through society. So, I want to work so much, I, I'm, but I I'm don't making have a, job. a face
1: because I'm not sure it's a distinction with a difference. Like uh, it, I understand what you're saying, but I'm not sure the words are correct in my mind.
0: The job I have is, is a subscription to participate in society that I do not enjoy. I like my work at this job, but it's still a job that I have to do to benefit from society. If my work, Directly benefited benefited me in the eyes of society. I wouldn't have a job. It would just be me doing the work I want to do instead of something I'm required to go
1: to. Okay, let's 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 give a real world example. So when I was a rabbi, it was a calling. It was a passion. It was a career. I also I didn't punch a clock because it's a very flexible job. But I had you know I had to be in an office. Or there were it, expectations. There were expectations, and there was a W two.
0: Mm-hmm, exactly.
1: I think now I'm structuring my own expectations.
0: And that's more what I would like to do for myself as myself.
1: Yeah. And I think also, you know, so we started talking about Rick Rubin and the 60 Minutes interview and his work in promoting the new book. And when I first saw that, I thought there was like lust over, you know, oh, he's wealthy and he gets to work with famous people. And I would like all those things. But really, at the end of the day, I want to do more work. Is when I am engaging with a client and see myself helping them transform their artistic process and product. I can go from a really lousy day to a really great day in oh, an yeah. hour.
0: Like, I, I I believe that 100%. Yeah, it's
1: it's delightful. Yeah. and and then I you know and even though the business is achieving liftoff and you know, 20 25 clients right now. If I only see each of them once a month, it's still only one hour a day of the, the work that I love. And then the rest yeah. is like figuring out what to put on Instagram and who to email for leads and setting up a billing system. And I would like to be getting to, I don't know what my carrying capacity is in terms of emotional and spiritual load. Like I don't, I could certainly see three people a day right now. And I can see a future where I can see five people a day. I don't know if I could get to like six, seven, eight people a day.
0: But. That's an eight-hour day of work with all the administrative things in between. Right, Right. you have to figure it out. Yeah.
1: But, and there's a part of me, and maybe this is just willful naivete, that thinks the money will follow. Right, like if I could just do more work because I find my work inspiring and there's always, you know, so most of my work is one hour, roughly one hour, one-on-one sessions. And there's the first like 10 to 20 minutes where I'm really nervous because I'm thinking, what is this person going to say? Can I be of any help? Oh God, I'm an imposter. Why would they listen to me? <laughs> the I don't imposter ha- syndrome is, yeah. is
0: tough sometimes.
1: But almost always by the end, I feel like I've done something of real significance. Helped a person, sometimes connected with something deeply spiritual, seen or been aware that really beautiful art is coming. You know, someone... Told me that um, I gave them an assignment, and in doing the assignment, they realized they had struggled with depression for half their life. And I was like, "Oh my god!" And,
0: and realized it then in the as assignment. they were doing the assignment.
1: Yeah. And I was like, "Well, my work here is done. Like, <laughs> you know, and not. I mean, I think we'll continue working." For a long time, but right. But it was that profound so realization powerful. is going to
0: shape a lot of how you go forward with this client, or how this client goes forward for themselves.
1: I mean, it was awkward. So I keep, you know, as every pastor and therapist as I keep a box of Kleenex in case someone was crying. And when the client told me this, I started crying, and I was like, "Could you pass me the Kleenex?" <laughs> it was just such an intensely moving experience to see, and it was an arts assignment, you know, make this thing. I don't wanna give away too much detail and compromise confidentiality, but to see the work of creativity unlock something deeply personal and spiritual and, and build or open awareness to things that one had been hiding from. And then to see the possibility, when I think of artists whom I've adored, like the one I always come back to is Michael K. Williams, the actor, You know, whose lives were and art was about metabolizing darkness, and sometimes they were swallowed by it. And then to realize, as I would have hoped, that I can help those artists stay on the safe side of the darkness. Um, My nine-year-old got me into Juice World. Do you know Juice World?
0: I'm aware of Juice World. Yes.
1: And. You know, I wouldn't say he's like in my top 20 favorite artists of all time, but I get why my nine-year-old loves him and I think he's great. And thinking about him dying young when there was so much more work within him and so much more work that would be save and salve a child like my own or the artists who saved me and the rabbis who saved me when I was 14, right? You know, to go to the well of certain artists. And for me, it was rush. It's like hard to talk. Being a being a Rush fan, Marvel comics reader, and D and D player only gets it gets easier to describe each year, but it's still kind of you still have that like 1980s fear of kids picking on you because you like those things. Um, you know, like listening to their music, I was like, oh, these guys get something right. They they can put into words a feeling, or not into words, into music a feeling that I'm having that I thought I was alone in having, and now I see that when I read certain psalms. Or experience certain works of art, like, you know, uh, the one I keep coming back to is the end of Blade Runner, Rutger Hauer's, you know. I'm
0: very familiar. <laughs> so, you know, that's improvised. Yeah. Like,
1: that's not in the script. Yeah. And that talk, what I think about art doing is expressing things that don't exactly have words. When Rutger Hauer has that story about Tears in the Rain and all the things he's seen as a replicant. Is that nostalgia or grief? It
0: doesn't It doesn't you, have a... You can't tell.
1: Right. You can't, you can't name that emotion, but you know what it is. Because we've like all experienced Right.
0: And does that make him alive?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it does. <laughs> I've never thought about that. That's the point, isn't right, it? Right, yeah. The point is he's just as alive as the rest of us. Like, he comes to the end of his life and has these sadnesses and regrets and nostalgia and grief and all these... Too many words to put into one. But you know in that two-minute scene...
0: Well, and it's...
1: Because I don't like that movie, but I love that scene.
0: Well, the overarching opinion of the movie in society, we all know. But I think uh, abbreviating the damages those aspects of human experience do to a psyche in such a way. Because, you know, in, in the story, the replicants are really good up until the end. And then it all hits the fan and then they go crazy. It's like the human experience abbreviates their pain in such a way at the end of their life expectancy that they just have to go mad. And I think that's such a well, I think that's such a neat way to illustrate parts of the human experience in a condensed way that we don't get to experience because we live all of that constantly our entire lives and to see it well, they, they and
1: they know when they're going to die.
0: Right uh, because of how they're built and why they're built and all those things. Yeah. so they, they know it's there and it's condensed in such a, in such a way that is so intense for them it's hard for them to come to grips but we live our whole lives with all these experiences and have the luxury of being able to come to grips with most of these experiences and feelings.
1: Okay, I feel the need to defend something, which is I did not like Blade Runner. I I, I actually enjoyed the sequel. I I get that Blade Runner is fantastically visually and world-building intense. Mm -hmm. I just find it kind of dull until the very end. And also in terms of cyberpunk and noir, I think the original Terminator does it better and world building.
0: I'm going to overwhelmingly agree with you. (laughs) Do you? Yeah. uh, The first Terminator movie was a revolution in film storytelling, I think, because it it integrated um, high sci-fi ideas that involved space and futurism and the human experience and then instantly put it into a format where, oh shit, I think I'm going to die. And, That contrast, I think, was one of the best films, uh, one of the best film experiences you could possibly have when it comes to showing the varying breadth of human emotion and human experience. Which is so strange to say about a movie about a robot that's coming to kill you.
1: I I think. I mean, I think I could talk about the original Terminator all day long and why Terminator Two is not okay. (laughs) But um, well,
0: Terminator Two is a horror movie, and it's very different.
1: No, Terminator One's a horror movie. Terminator Two is like a action movie mm-hmm. and it's all it's all cgi which at the time was revolutionary but it, you can't make a story out of cgi so okay i'm gonna go down a terminator rabbit hole let's go of why it might be it, it typically i might say it's my favorite movie i like horror more and more i had to learn to admit that like it's a genre i really loved i think michael bean is a phenomenal actor who pro- i think derailed his career for a lot of reason a lot of things i think schwarzenegger is actually really good at it people say oh it's easy to Play emotionless? I'm like, no, it's not. He is the level of stoicism. Yeah, and you gotta t- have that on your face. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. It's not having anything on your face is very hard. I think I want I want someone. If you have a listener who can answer this for me, there's a scene where they're in Technoir, which is the club where the first shooting happens, where they where they all come together. That looks like it's shot in slow motion, but I've asked a film professor of mine. I think it's actually they're dancing slow. And that way it looks like the Terminator is moving at improbable speed. Yeah. So everyone's kind of like, everyone's moving as if slow motion. but I think they're shot in, in 24 frames per second.
0: So when you play it at 24 frames per second, everybody's moving slow and he is fast.
1: I think so. It makes him look like unstoppable. And I think another movie that does this really well is the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's, the storytelling is so, so tight are talking about like removing any fat from the bone.
0: Yeah,
1: it's almost all show, not tell, except for a couple of there's some title cards and a little bit of dialogue. Even Michael Bean's dialogue feels natural. So another movie that did this well recently. Have you seen Prey?
0: Oh yes, yes, I it's, watched it. It is that movie is an amazing movie. There's there's no fat on that bone at all. No, no, there's you have very intense and very direct. Uh, character development and character hierarchy development and then the action starts and stuff hits the fans and then it's, it all unfolds in a way that seems perfectly logical
1: you could almost watch prey with the sound off and get most of the movie
0: mm-hmm. i agree. With
1: that. I watched it gonna, i I've watched
0: seen it, i've seen it three times well four. Four. that's fine well no the story of my the story
1: the first two is interesting i my kids are out of town it was a Friday afternoon. I had it on. I, it finished. I got up to use the bathroom and then I was like, what am I going to do with the rest of the night? So I just watched, watched it again. It again. Yep. I have I, never I, done that.
0: I, you know, honestly, I'm not one to watch movies multiple times in short time spans either. Because I don't like feeling as if I'm retrading the same mm-hmm. ground. But that movie...
1: I had something to discover.
0: Yeah. That, I, and it was so thoughtful in the context of the overarching Predator... Mythos that you didn't have any questions about why or what, because um, it just fits so well like like you didn't know this puzzle piece was missing until you were given this piece
1: it's it's so excellent, it's such an excellent movie I mean the I, because it has it also has the terror vibe of the Terminator, which is like
0: there's this thing that's coming to get you, and you can't stop it
1: right, and way more powerful than you, yeah.
0: Right, it is it is a, a seemingly unstoppable force,
1: and that's it's actually interesting. That vibe has really entered my my role playing games. That that it's I always more and more I want the players to feel like dread. N- yeah, but also this sense of like one wrong we can't make a wrong move. We have to oh, be yeah. so much smarter. What the story of the, of prey is that she is so much cleverer. Mm. Right, I mean that's the Omar Little in the Wire, Mike Ehrmantraut. They're not tr- physically strong. They don't have the resources.
0: But you have to be, the you have to overcome strength with brains. Yeah. you have to outthink these obstacles. Unbelievable.
1: I love stuff like that. I love those characters. I love Mike Ehrmantraut in Breaking Bad and Better Call and Better Call Saul, and Omar Little in the Wire. Like the people who show up first. The people who, am I'm, I'm trying to wrench this back into thinking about how that affects art but
0: it doesn't have to full circle it's fine <laughs> no but it, there is
1: a lesson there there's something there about well i mean i think you work you know real artists work their asses off well how
0: do you, how do you craft that viewing experience for 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 the end user of this piece of media you, I, I would feel as if it's a constant collaboration between you and the crew and the writers and everyone oh, involved.
1: Oh, for sure. But I mean, actually the character, like in what way, you know, there are these disparate elements in my life today. So there's, you know, these heroic or anti-heroic elements like, uh, I don't remember the character's name in Prey or Mike Armantrout in, in Breaking Bad and, uh, and Omar Little in The Wire who are smarter and harder working than anyone else in the room. There's The Talmud, which is both a book about logic and about cross linear dialogue. And then there's process. I mean, those are the things that are coming up for us today, right? I mean, I think there is something about it. Like this myth of like the tortured artist who's always drunk, like they don't make. They don't have much of a career. Like, that. Woody Allen's manager said about Lenny Bruce that he sinned against his talent. right? And well,
0: I, you, it's really easy to shoot yourself in the foot, right? Any time.
1: You have to. I and I think it's this disgusting societal idea that artists have it easy. Like I was thinking, if I met Dua Lipa, my first question would be, "What's your work day like?" Yeah, that's an I excellent bet question. that, she works really hard. Uh,
0: yeah, she probably gets. You know. Four to six hours of sleep and is go, go, go the rest of the time. Yeah.
1: I bet she goes to sleep at 2 p.m., 2 a.m. and wakes up by 10. I don't know if she gets four to six hours of sleep, but it's not like, it's not just the two hours on stage. Well, I
0: say four to six because that's what I get. Ugh. And if it's six, I'm lucky. At night, I usually get four and a half to five hours of sleep because about my day, when I get home from work, I don't feel as if I've spent my day doing things that I feel valuable for me. Mm-hmm. Obviously, like I'm making money and doing things that I feel good doing while I'm at work, but it's not the things that I would spend my time doing if it was solely so me doing my time. So, you know, I'll be up till midnight or 1 a.m. working on my art for myself until I feel good about what I've done, and then I'll go to bed no matter what time it is. I just try not to get less than three hours of sleep because then I'm a zombie the next day. But four and a half hours of sleep, if I can get that minimum, I feel okay going into the next day.
1: Consistently, mm-hmm. if I get less than seven consistently, I'm not a happy person.
0: Uh, let's see. Last night, uh, last night I went to bed a little early. I was in bed at ten thirty, and I woke up at uh, seven thirty this morning. But I don't work Fridays. I work four days a week, so if my so you day, do catch up, I, I try to, but it doesn't always. Like last night, I could. I really intended to spend a couple hours finishing the painting that I'm currently working on last night, but I just sat on the couch and fell into the YouTube rabbit hole and sleep on the couch so it didn't happen. But um, I had the intent to do that and that would have put me in bed around midnight, 1230, just because getting into that groove and coming out of that groove would take that long uh, for this particular thing. I, it's not that my creative process extracts a lot of, amount of time out of my day, it's just that once I get in the groove, I try not to break myself out of it unless I absolutely have to. Right. So I like to spend several hours working on the thing when I can get into flow state and just do. And even if it's just looking at it, thinking about what I'm going to do next, that's still an important part of the process that I try not to abbreviate. So four and a half to six hours of sleep is pretty normal to me. I would love to get eight every night, but it's almost impossible.
1: I'm having a reaction, and it's probably the rabbi's reaction to someone who could be in their care of, like, don't forget to take care of yourself. And it oh. sounds it sounds like it can't help but compromise you at some point.
0: Um, it does at times, but I'm mindful of that because I've been doing this for a while. I know myself really well at this point. I'm almost 32 years old. I've taken my artistic expression seriously since I was, like, 23. So... I, I know myself well enough now that if I have to break my concentration and say, you need to go to bed because you've got to be up at 5 a.m. I'm not. I don't want to, but I know I need to. <laughs> I so, don't want to. I don't want to, but I, I know I need to. I don't want to. Because there are expectations of me otherwise. You know, I need to be at work at 6 a.m. to get the printers and the plotters going and make sure the guys that are out in the shop floor doing all the installs have all the work they need that day. Because in my job, I'm the bottleneck. So if I'm not there doing the things, making sure all those guys have everything they need, everybody's fussing me because I'm not working hard enough. And I don't want to get fussed at for not working hard enough when those guys don't have all the work that they need.
1: Is there a way to rebalance your life so that you are doing more making and less working, to use your language? Um, Or I think you said you called the work, you called the crafting and the making the working, and you had another word for the job. More work, less job, I guess is what you said.
0: I would like to have more work, less job. And Is there a
1: way to rebalance at <laughs> all, even even fractionally?
0: I'm trying to figure out a way to do that currently, and I'm having a really difficult time with it. Um, I would very much like to be surrounded by art more in my daily life, and oh, that's yeah. and that's not my art, that's everyone's art, art on the whole. I love to celebrate creativity, so... The thing that draws me most is being able to somehow facilitate a multi-use space that is a vacuum for expression. Oh my that, God, kind of,
1: that sounds cool. Is this a, like a physical space? Yeah, or physical space.
0: Um, well, right now it's a metaphor because it's not a brick and mortar space outside of my house. Now, my house is the multi-use space right now, and I'll do all my art there. I paint life out and about at shows and stuff too, but that's not what I'm trying to focus on. You know, I'll have friends come over. We'll have art days. Like I have plenty of friends that play music. They'll come over, and we'll we'll I'll paint. They'll play. We'll do whatever. We'll just do our things in the same space. And I would very much like to extend. You should have a rabbi there.
1: That would be fun. I have a rabbi right here. No, I mean at (laughs) your your art days. I I would not
0: uh, be upset about that. I would
1: love to be at one of those. Uh, That sounds fun.
0: Well, I will give you a heads up next time. Yes. There's something happening at my house.
1: Yes, and then I'll tell Mike, give my wife some excuse why I have to leave.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You. You can handle that one. <laughs> <laughs> what day is it? Like a particular day of the week? No, it's just whenever just, things just fall up. Yeah, but put, see, me, on the, put having, me on
1: the on the text for yeah,
0: that. Having a uh, having a physical space that is more accessible and more aimed at generating these types of gatherings would make would facilitate these things more often and more frequently and have a higher value, in my opinion. So I would love to facilitate a space that has continuous art on display that rotates every month. And I would also love that place to be a space that puts on artists and shows art that the other established galleries around town would never want to show you. Like my, my aim for this place is to be called the Weird Gallery because this is all the stuff that nowhere else around town wants to show you because they don't see the value in it. I've had my work rejected out of damn near every, val- uh, every gallery around town that I've had the balls to ask. And my art is just as valid as anyone else's to be displayed anywhere, I feel like, because it is a creative output. So the fact that I'm being gatekeeped, you know, people are playing gatekeeper or uh, saying that my work doesn't fit the aesthetic of their venue or that their wall space has a higher dollar value than my art can bring, whatever it may be, I've been told all sorts of things. I don't see why that's a valid excuse to tell me no. If you don't want it, just say no. You don't have to layer all these things on top of it. So I would like to facilitate a space where the more counterculture things are the things that are welcome and happily presented because I've encountered quite a difficult time showing my work around town in established places that are facilities for displaying art. Now I've shown art in bars. I've shown art in restaurants. I've shown art all kinds of places, but not one established gallery around town. that says, Hey, yes, you can show your work here.
1: I think, there was a movement in France where they had to do that. I can't... I remember reading.
0: So I would like to facilitate a venue to where that weird stuff that nobody else wants to show you, that's all we have here. Mm-hmm. I would love that. And that be also used for, like, live poetry readings was and music and all these things. Yeah. Not, just, not just visual art that's There's no place here that does that? I mean... There are mixed-use places like the Birdhouse is a community house, and they do all sorts of things. And you can do, you know, anything in there you want, pretty much, as long as it's publicly presentable, you know. Um, but and and I've done art shows there, and I've been part of art shows there. But it's 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 not a permanent space for those types of things. And I would like to have a permanent. There's no brick one of doing room.
1: that radical stuff here.
0: Not that I've been privy to discover. Well, we got to do that. Well, that, that's that. That is what is taking up most of my. I am happy to be a focused.
1: spiritual support for <laughs> that physical work.
0: Well, I would greatly appreciate.
1: That. I would. That sounds fun to me. Um, I like radical shit. I don't like. I mean, I like all of it. I, I, you know, I also like Lizzo's
0: album. But, well, I, and, and you know, I enjoy going down to Gay Street and looking at all the art and yeah. going to the Emporium Center, and it's all wonderful and valid, and it all deserves the same kind of space. But right now, I've not discovered that there's a space for the things that I want to do. And I, and and in my life, when I've discovered that there is no space for the things that I want to do, I make that space. Good for you. I've always been, like, in it's my artistic...
1: In, in a way, it's an installation space. You're talking about yeah. doing more or less installations yeah. that involve multimedia, words, poetry. Yeah,
0: yeah. All, all of it. Um, yeah. Because how, how can I sit here and tell you that your creative output does not fit my space? Because if this is a space specifically crafted to showcase creativity why would I exclude your creativity from my space that is made well, to facilitate creativity
1: I, I mean I, I don't want to be a dickhead but it's not always gatekeeping sometimes it's just capacity which, right? like which galleries just by square footage of a downtown gallery I'm thinking New York expensive I mean, well not
0: like, once have I been told that we don't have the space and, and I totally understand the physical limitations of of, of a volume, but that's never what people say.
1: What do they say? I know this isn't for us.
0: I've, I've had that a lot. Or we don't feel as if we can sell your work.
1: Well, that's a, that's a kind of we don't have the space, right? Like if we can't give the wall space to X because we can't sell it and turn it over.
0: Like It's a business. Well, I mean, I, and that I understand. But it, it on the receiving end of that statement, it doesn't seem very empathetic. It doesn't seem No,
1: weird. I'm sure Gal- I'm sure aren't very empathetic.
0: <laughs> Why would they be? Uh,
1: no, I mean just it's not their, you know, I'm right. it goes to it goes to the thing I was saying about I can't be objective about my artists anymore. Cuz I'm in it for them and their work and and helping them get it out. I don't I tend to like it because I was part of the story, right? And maybe that's a vanity, maybe that's a subjectivity, but it's also like not what I'm here to do. And it's hard because there's stuff I hear and I'm like, oh, I don't like this. But I mean, people have said, Hey, do you want to work with this artist? I'm like, oh, I don't like that stuff at all. But <laughs> but I might well like the person. And I had, I had I had two experiences in my life. I remember my wife started doing pottery fifteen-ish years ago. And she starts taking a class, and uh, she I came home from a trip. She's like, Oh, my first. Bowl came back I was like oh dear god I'm not to pretend I like it and I liked it I liked her work from. The, I mean her work is legitimately really good and it was good enough from the beginning and I do remember seeing a band and I was like oh this is a good band I like these people and they sent me their demo and it was so like gorgeous just, just when I opened the package they sent me mm-hmm. and then I listened to it and I was like oh they did it alright you know I don't know what that means but it's all subjective also, right? And we pretend that Pitchfork or Variety are doing these objective things, but they're not. They're just It's just a different kind of subjectivity. Well, they're,
0: they're invested in the status quo. Not
1: always. I don't know.
0: I, maybe my point of view is a bit biased because I like the weird stuff. But I, I don't like seeing people so invested in the status quo that they're scared to do something a little different. And I, I don't know whether that's just me being used to doing all the different things all the time that I see not that in other institutions and people a lot.
1: Is any of that a helpful self-rationalization?
0: Um, it helps me dictate where I put my time and energy. So perhaps... Um, if I mean in
1: the sense of like, well, the establishment doesn't like me, so I must be doing something right. Like, is that, is that
0: an... I try not to think about the establishment... A lot as a whole because I, I, I really try to just take things as a case-by-case basis because I I don't find that my overarching opinions are very useful. <laughs> uh, so so I try to look at things in a more granular nature uh, as best I can. But, I you know, that being said, there are experiences that, that lead me to having my opinions, but I also know that they're my, my opinions and They're fallible, and there's no way I'm right all the time. So I I have a a healthy dose of salt on all these things. As best I try to keep it. Okay. Um,
1: Yeah, go ahead. I'm running out of steam. Oh, okay. That's good.
0: That being said, I, I try to take my experiences in a very granular way, and I know that one experience here does not dictate how other experiences will go, but I know in my life that... Uh, The experiences I've had have led me to be very comfortable with the fact that I know I must craft my own things for myself, uh, and then include other people like me to fill it out.
1: There was a movement in, in Paris in, I think, the 19th century, but it might be 20th century, that needed, had to create its own venues. I can't think of who it was. Maybe Cezanne. They had to create their own venues. It does happen.
0: I know in my life experience, the creative people that I have around me have been the most fostering to other sources of creativity, and I always work, or always enjoy working with people that uh, wish to foster the same type of positive environment about places to be creative and express themselves. I, I know a lot of musicians, and musicians are always looking for places to play and practice. And sometimes they just have to make it themselves in their basement, you know, and that's just always the DIY mentality I've ever had about anything that I wish to accomplish. That's why I have 3D printers and make my own jewelry. It's why I make my own stencils and stamps and things for my art. It's why I guess I'm trying to build my own brick-and-mortar venue to display my art and people's art that's like mine, uh, you know, in the same counterculture weird, just not generally what you would see at the bar in public kind of thing. And, I take satisfaction in this, and I like seeing other people uh, enjoy such things. It's a rising tide raises all ships mentality. Because I, I don't I don't like being selfish when it comes to um, sharing creativity. I want other people to to share and behold as much as I care to share and behold. So facilitating a space for everyone to do that, the thought of that makes me really happy. And that's work I never would mind doing. Yeah. So that's, that's the work I want to do. Yeah,
1: I hear that. That's
0: right. um, but I guess we can wrap up uh, on if you will tell people where to find you and, and do all the things. <laughs>
1: uh, I'm Eclectic Cleric on most social media, and my website is www.eclecticcleric.com. Um, my email is alone at eclecticcleric.com.
0: That's all of it? All the things? instagram's facebook's eclectic cleric on
1: instagram facebook i think that's what i use on insight timer for meditations Uh, twitter which i rarely use i do have a tiktok eclectic cleric but i've yet to do anything with it oh youtube i have a couple a lot of stuff on youtube okay
0: so youtube's and most social media platforms you can find this guy and uh, find him readily accessible Uh, I'm Thomas Zachary this has been the newest episode of the KAAMP if you wish to support the podcast you can buy my art at TTW underscore artworks on Instagram you can find also all those things on Facebook and if you would like to support the podcast in a non-monetary way you can share it rate it subscribe it and uh, wonderfully put it in your friends ear holes with consent thank y'all very much thank you thank you
1: thank you